Croiso, and welcome to At the Table or Urth Oburth, a six part series presented by Artis Mundi in partnership with Cardiff Metropolitan University. In each episode of At the Table, we've invited guests to bring their curiosity and knowledge to help us unfold and explore the artist's work. In this episode, shortlisted Artist Mundi Night artist Carrie Mae Weems will be talking about her work with artist and professor Sonia Boyce, OBE RA. Thomas J. Lax, Curator of Media and Performance at the Museum of Modern Art, New York, artist, writer and curator Amalkhair Mohammed, and artist, stylist and founder of Docs magazine, Nicole Reddy. So I'm Carrie Mae Weems and I have been a working girl for a very, very long time. And uh, of course, I'm you know excited to, to, to be here. And I'm only sorry that I'm not able to be there to see the work um, after so much hard work. It's really difficult not to be able to see the work installed and to understand um, the context really in which the work is being um, considered. Thank you, Carrie. Sonia Boyce. Actually, it might be quite interesting to know how you started to think about forms of representation. I was introduced to your work through the Kitchen Table series. And actually, it seems to be really pertinent that this session is called around the kitchen table. So yeah, I'm just wondering how you started to think about representation. What, what was it that sparked that? Absence. <laughs> Historical absence. Very early in my life, you know, having a sense that, that the ways in which historically African-Americans, you know, had been uh, described, you know, um, had been made subject uh, was a problem for me. From the very beginning, I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. It made me feel uncomfortable. I didn't, of course, have the language or the words for it um, as a young as a young artist. But I understood what it was. And then, of course, you know, later later when I started school, college, you know, in my sort of desperate search out of my curiosity to see what was available, to see what others had made. Where are the women? Where are the brown and black? photographers, what is that work look like, right? And realizing that it simply wasn't there. You know, there were, there were no books essentially in the library. There was one or two about women, one or two uh, uh, maybe around um, people of color. I went to school, college, uh, when in, the, in the 1980s, so I'm getting really old. But early on, I, I understood that this lack of representation, not a quote, positive representation, but a more complicated representation of Blackness uh, in my relationship to Blackness as both a, uh, a participant observer needed to be um, uh, addressed in some serious way. But, you know, I started my career really looking at and organizing around what other artists had done. And I spent a lot of time traveling around the country doing interviews with other artists. Um, first of all, finding those artists, then doing interviews with them, then developing my own collection of slides um, around their work, and then doing a whole series of conversations and lectures to anybody who would listen, classes and so forth, to anybody who would listen, to any student that was brave enough to take my class, or to my professors who were, you know, uh, brave enough to allow me to have, you know, like a microphone and a slide projector. Um, really talking about the work that had been made and really digging 
for that work. And that was really um, a lot of the effort and time around my sort of initial um, uh, advance into the world of representation and photography in particular. And then of course, uh, then um, finding my own voice and my own place as um, not only um, um, a historian who was interested in the body of work that had been made, but of course in the production of my own work, uh, my own self um, as an artist uh, that became um, very important as well. Thomas, I'm wondering here, this question about collecting and finding artists and inviting others in. You know, I've, I've been, of course, I've read the essay that you've done for the, the catalogue and you, you do invite us to think about the ways in which Carrie, she doesn't come alone. She always brings others with her. And this question about going out and searching and, and inviting people in and inviting through a search in a way. And I, I, I'm just kind of thinking about your essay in relation to, to Carrie's practice, but also, you know, how you found your way into this field of art and, and the artists that inspire you. You know, I just, I just kind of wondered about that. I think the word that Carrie used of absence really struck a chord because it's, it's quite clear that that absence that you named is produced, it's constructed it is actually a counterfactual to the presence and history and tradition out of which we emerge. And, you know, as you described your own work to meet those people who had formed that history and then to document it, to actually take on the role of chronicling that history, that indeed that history exists. It's just buried, repressed, and produce as an absence. And so, you know, I think, first of all, I have to say, Carrie, thank you for the opportunity to write this essay. You know, sometimes we have to create our own context for our work. And, you know, that was, that was very much the tradition that Sarah Lewis, who put together this anthology of your writings for October with you, imagine that, you know, there continues to be work of documenting and archiving our own history. And, and we have the kind of space in our relationships and our collaborations to to do that. And I think, you know, as I, as I began to just try to understand the tradition that you have emerged from and that you've named that it's a long tradition of Black feminist practice of creating these spheres of mutual aid and influence. And, you know, I think in that essay, I talk about Hazel Carby's work, and I just wanted to bring her into the room as another Black Welsh descendant uh, who's thought about the relationship between these two identities as deeply, intimately imbricated with one another in, in her recent memoir. But, you know, she writes gorgeously in Reconstructing Womanhood about the way in which in the 19th century, the emergence of the Black woman novelist was only possible because of one's ability to be supported by others. And, and I quickly understood in my own initiation into the art world that that would be the condition of my capacity to produce anything of value and worth was this sense of mutual need of one another. I think I was lucky to be spoiled by a world in which that was the norm. And this is a the, you know Black feminist space of the studio museum, but other relationships that had emerged from other kinds of institutions and, and really modeled in practice. I mean, what's so gorgeous for me about, you know, the thing that brings us together to your work originally, Carrie, is that like in form, you create the space for what a convening does. 
and you know the convening is a is a space of joy and pleasure but also of debate and dissensus and and i think we see all of that in that work and so i learned that implicitly before i had this language as you said to kind of describe it that way and now that i've learned that to be a tradition hope in whatever ways i can just to record the ways in which that tradition pops up again and again against all odds Thank you. Thank you, Dobbs. I- I'm just wondering, both for Nicole and for Um, what does it mean to find your voice? Because taking up this question of what Carrie raises is something that I felt acutely when I was a student at art school. The need to go and find and the need to be able to find a space from which to speak. And I just wonder, between both of you, actually, if that has meaning for you, and if so, what kind of meaning does that have in your own practice and in finding your practice? So for me, I feel as though the idea of finding the voice, it was a very kind of elusive thing in the beginning. I didn't really understand what it meant. So I just kind of, I just started to to create because that was the the thing that was driving me. And and I felt like I would figure out what my voice was kind of along the way. And what I've learned through kind of doing that and not really necessarily intellectualizing my work before I, I make it is that for me it's less about necessarily finding my voice but it's more about creating a context where I feel like my voice is valued I have space to share what I am able to share so it's more around the context rather than myself because I feel like the context so much informs how I show up it's this thing of being multifaceted and allowing yourself to be that as a black artist you feel the weight of that othering just before you even become an artist as a black individual you do you feel othered you feel like there is so much projected onto you for me it's more about kind of quieting those projections and and stepping into a light that um, has more kind of space for me Sonia Boyce I'm going to jump in here and refer to one of the works that's in the show repeating the obvious which to me seems to be so much about that question of what gets projected the idea of the singular and the multiple, the idea of the stereotype and the, the variance, all the same, all slightly different. That comes up really strongly. And actually, one of the first things that I was thinking about the entire show, actually, is this question about constellations, the constellations of what gets projected onto us, how we might be able to manoeuvre between the projection and our own sense of where we stand or what we feel we represent. Carrie Mae Weems. I think that this problem of representation, it looms so large. that can be so, as we know, devastating, crippling, right? There are aspects of it that are completely anchored in the idea of destruction of the other, you know, the dismantling of the other. This idea then of working with representational images. At this point, I'm really battling with this idea. Of course, you know, I'm an image maker, and at the same time, trying to figure out how to build a work that has a, a certain kind of voicing and a certain underpinning that will hopefully disabuse the possibility of it being dismantled in a way that is destructive to what's being offered, right? At the end of the day, there's only so much that we can control. We only control just, you know, can't really control what people ultimately wind up doing with the images or how they, you know, sort of manipulate the images. But but what I can do is through my own sort of sense of really sort of a prescribed voice and meaning intention that is built around the work, 
shore it up as much as possible before I give it to the world. And I'm shoring it up for me. It's really not so much about my audience initially. The primary search, the primary question around voicing and making, being an, a, an artist with a certain kind of imagination and a certain kind of position is to build the work that I absolutely need to see for myself. And I'm going to you know, assume that for the most part, curatorial practice has a great deal to do with that as well, right? That through the building of an exhibition, you are also creating the terms of your own condition in relationship to the subject that is being revealed. Again, as Thomas talked about earlier, it's all sort of based around the sort of notions of construction. But I think that this idea of the production of absence would make a really great title <laughs> our next show, Thomas. <laughs> we can all collaborate. Well, collaboration is always based on friendship, or at least it should be. Of course, many friendships have ended over collaboration. <laughs> but Nicole, what about you in terms of your own kind of voicing and the way you can arrive at your own narrative for this piece, which grows out of your own issues and ideas, complexities around voice? Nicole Reddy. I feel like I, so I went to uni and I studied fashion and it got to a point in my degree where I lost someone really close to me. And I thought, what am I doing fashion for? This is such a narcissistic industry. And then I realized I have this skill of creating imagery that people are interested in. So why not use that to actually show things I really care about, which is like my community, which is blackness, which is family which is heritage which is culture and then I started to like create work that I was like proud of and I was like I don't care whether I get a good grade on this this is work that I need this is work my community needs and then when I created Docs my magazine which was for a community in South Wales in Cardiff which is one of the oldest multicultural communities in the UK and consistently deals with systemic racism is like completely segregated like there's literally a massive wall that's been built on the side of the community to kind of shut it out because it's so multicultural and wants to kind of, I feel like the council wants it to be othered. But for me, that was like a place where like my family is from that, like it's so vibrant and such a lovely place and so homely and creating something for me and for like my family and for people who I grew up around to see themselves represented and then seeing the response to that and being like, oh, this was needed. And then when you guys were talking about absence, I was like, there was such an absence. But when you think of absence, you think of like emptiness. But it was like, it wasn't empty. It was like that absence was filled with so much negativity of what Butte Town and Docks was that it needed to be refilled with what it really is and what I see and what my community sees. So I feel like that's when I found my voice in being like, oh, I can create things that are visually engaging and people want to know more about that actually are deeper than just it being a nice image. And um, with Repeating the Obvious, that wasn't in the film, but when I did my script for Repeating the Obvious, it was like the one where I was like, wow, this is incredible. This is so long. Letty pretty much had to cut it out because it would have been the whole film otherwise. But it was one of those things where it is an absence where if you if you haven't spoke to young black men, if you haven't heard their experience, you wouldn't understand the fact that 
they're constantly seen as the exact same thing. They're constantly seen as not being human. You don't see a real identity. You just see the same generalization over and over again, this lack of focus in who they actually are as people. And it's just like the same story over and over again. And we see it in America and we see it in Cardiff. If anyone from Cardiff is on the call, you know about the Mahmoud Hassan case, which is going on at the moment. You know about the Cardiff Three, which happened in the 90s. That was in Butte Town. Like we see it time and time again. And there's only so many news reports we can see. We need to see it in our museums, like we do now in Cardiff with your piece, Carrie, and be like, it is here, it is in America, it's all over the world and something needs to be done and this conversation needs to happen for us to like it it basically needs to be repeated it's the obvious to us isn't obvious to other people and we need to repeat it to make it obvious so yeah that piece is just incredible I'm still fangirling you have to send me your text I'd love to see it I'd love to read it I'd love to know more about it and just you know thank you I mean you know as I sort of come to this sort of place in my life I've been talking about many of these issues for 50 years maybe more, long time. So my, my whole life has been buried in these issues and trying to excavate myself out of these issues to sort of get on top of them, right? So that they don't completely control me or consume me in a way that is destructive to my person. Because ultimately that's what they can do. And that's because that's how powerful they are. And the systems that we are challenging are very complex, very dangerous, and can be dangerous to us. And so knowing how to, what they are, knowing how to use them, knowing how to confront them, I think becomes really important. You know, I started standing outside of museums 20 years ago, just standing in front of them, thinking about them, standing in front of various institutions, thinking about the role of capital, thinking about the role of cultural institutions, simply pointing to them with my own body. And any number of these institutions have historically refused to accept that actually, you know, change was coming, that demographic shifts were going to be a huge um, obstacle for them to really face. And um, certainly with the straw that broke the camel's back, with the death of George Floyd, all of this has sort of come to a fore in a way that no one could have anticipated or imagined. Mm-hmm. They knew that the demographic shifts were coming, that institutions would have to respond to them. And so I'm sort of wondering, Sonia, as you do your work, um, Thomas, as you're doing your work, how do you sort of uh, navigate these um, powerful institutions that have had, you know, that have extraordinary histories filled with work that uh, much of which I deeply admire. I am not against museums by any stretch of the imagination. But I do understand what museums are, and I'm wondering what you think about how you work in institutions and what your your role is, how you see your role contemporarily as cultural producers inside institutions and museums. And Um, you can speak to this as well. Carrie, your questions are always like these prompts for anthologies of deep feelings and relations that are always ambivalent and and filled with mixed feelings. You know, there is this kind of respect and indebtedness for me and also a kind of refusal at the same time or a way of taking up 
a tradition that also was not meant to be ours in some ways, but to claim it nevertheless. I return often to this amazing quote by Jamaican poet Lorna Goddison, who says, you know, when um, she, she was questioned for her use of British poetic traditions, why she made use of them, she responded by kind of quoting an enslaved woman who was on a plantation in Jamaica and effectively, you know, she took sugar from the plantation on which she lived and went to court. And when she was asked, why did you steal the sugar? She said, you know, I am not a thief. I took what was mine. <laughs> um, I think both of their roles was not necessarily designed to have them eat that sugar and, you know, take on the traditions of romantic poetry. And nevertheless, we do. That kind of thievery under another name that really becomes a kind of mantle. And, and I think, you know, Carrie, the, the museum series that you talked about, for me, is such a gorgeously felt way in which one can insist upon one's presence at the precipice of the institution, you know, at once bearing witness, being a kind of borderland or frontier inhabitor and not going anywhere uh, all at the same time. I think that there's just so much possibility in reading those works that to me feels so here, here we have a gorgeous photograph from that series um, that, that speaks to uh, something that a colleague and friend, um, a curator in Brazil, uh, Gianni Lima, and I'll talks about is this kind of move from representation to performativity. And what I understand her saying in that is that you know, one doesn't necessarily know exactly what the sign or referent um, denotes or means in the way that perhaps representation assumes. And, and for me, there's just so much capacity and um, space for um, mutability for the culture to change as you stand nevertheless solidly and solidly um, in this place. And you know, I think the fact that it's your person, it's your body uh, means something really specific that you know, we really put ourselves not just on the line, but allow our own personal experiences to guide us. And, and Carrie, what you said about just you know, your own process of like creating the thing that you need is just something I just really wanna for myself return to of how deep that is. Um, to kind of create um, from a space in which it is that enactment, it is that performativity um, that is the kind of generative and generous act. You know, as we enter this new territory, I, I really am beginning to wonder as we build new institutions and new modes of relating relationships and relationship to the institution, the institution must change out of necessity. It has actually no option in a certain way if it hopes to be relevant to the future. So museums will undergo some profound changes um, in the next 25 years as they did in the last 50 years, right? You know, the Museum of Modern Art was a very different animal in, you know, in 1945, right? Uh, the Guggenheim was a very different kind of animal as well. So museums are, 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 are changing and how they change now then, we have sort of like the capacity in a way that we didn't before to underscore the direction in which some of these institutions will find themselves. And I think that um, that's a very exciting thing to be a part of. Sonia. So I'm thinking about being a child. And when I was a child, I loved going into museums. I loved the, the setting of the scene, the lighting, 
the placement, the kind of atmosphere of the museum. And, and, and of course, as I'm much older now, I've realised my ambivalence with that love affair, if that makes sense, in that, and I'm thinking particularly of the project that I've been working on, research project that I've been working on in recent years called Black Artists and Modernism, which uh, was looking at the ways in which African and Asian descent artists in the UK, where they sit within the museum's collections, is that you know there is a story really about how many works by these black people of color, brown artists are in those museums, but hidden in plain sight. And so there's been a journey that we've been going on to try and excavate, to take the work out of cold storage, so to speak, and say, oh, we have this here, because the museum, particularly the public museum, is meant for the public, which includes me. And so one of the things about, you know, thinking about those images of yours from the museum series is that these are beautiful spaces and we have every right to be, and also we've helped build them in the first place. Mm-hmm. And very much like the story you were, you were saying, Thomas, taking what's already mine. I really recognise one, the, the productive absence that Thomas mm-hmm. refers to, as well as my love of those spaces and that question about display, the question about being romanced by objects and the, the ambivalence between those spaces. I do go in with trepidation, but I often find my, myself in a space where there is power. And of course, the space of the museum is a space of huge cultural power, but also political power, because representation is a political question. It is a question about, you know, and I do think about whether one, one is talking about the Black Lives Matter, the killing of George Floyd, what has happened in the UK time and time and time again. We could be going back to the 50s and the 60s, actually, with some of these things. The question about representation and what gets projected, all of these things are deeply political. So taking up that question of power, whether it's to work in the cultural industries or whether it's to work in the citadels of power, and of course the museum is a citadel of power, it's not easy, but there's also a, rom- a romance. And I don't think I would want to, I think it's someone said, you know, I, I don't want to go to your revolution if I can't dance. You know, I want to enjoy that space as well as critique it. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is precisely what's in those images of yours, Carrie, that there is the delight, the wonder of those spaces and your presence. It's like, I will not be moved until I'm ready. There's that kind of quality of, about that work. How do you bring your audience as closely as possible as you can, even when they are resisting? How do you bring them as close as you possibly can to the work? I'm interested in making really, really beautiful images that are also critical in their underpinning, right? You know, and for me, that's the sort of um, the dynamic and that's the tension and that's the work and that's the real work. You know, it's, you know, not only have you figured out the idea, you know, conceptually, but now how do you build it? How do you make it? You know, what are, you know, what are the aesthetic concerns, you know, that you have to engage 
as an artist. I'm not a documentarian. I'm not a painter. I'm a photographer. And I deal with sort of building these images in a particular kind of way. And photography has all to do with light. So how do you use that to sort of describe and model and shape the thing that you're really interested in sort of getting to? And so this has been an ongoing issue, idea, problem, concern, and dance at the same time. And it's exciting. How do you, again, uh, bring your audience with you? And in part, you do that through a, a certain kind of seduction. And I would be lying if I said that that wasn't true or that that didn't interest me because I'm aware of that. And on those terms, in the terms that we understand in the context of this country. Now, interestingly enough, I was having this conversation yesterday with Wyndham Marcellus and Sarah Lewis, Ava DuVernay, and uh, Theastra Gates. It was a fabulous, fabulous conversation. Now, the thing that's interesting to me you see, a lot of people are really tired of even talking about the issue of Black representation right now, including myself, <laughs> you know what I mean? Including me, right? You know, this sort of ongoing issue of Black representation, but I haven't thrown up my hands, right? Can't throw up my hands, but I understand what's going on in part. In part, I'm, I'm wondering, and I wonder what you think about this, Thomas, and all of you, poetry, and music, jazz, classical, even R&B, they are abstract forms of expression. And therefore they allow billions of people around the world to engage them. Visual representation, that sort of underscores identity in a certain kind of way, necessarily has its limits because we become interested in the thing that reflects us. The vast majority of people are interested in the thing that reflects them, that they see themselves reflected in, whether that's a painting or a drawing or a photograph. So then what are the limits of representation um, in contemporary culture as we sort of slam up against all of these notions of binaries and differences that keep us sort of chopped across the divide? Or even when you're trying to weave in notions of humanness at its core, it's still read as Black work about Black people, for instance. That the, the Black subject has historically not been able to stand for more than itself. The, the white subject can stand for any range of ideas, emotions, etc. The Black subject is always framed in relationship to the Black subject. And very rarely, very rarely, can it push beyond that where it hasn't been able to successfully, which is the reason that we keep coming back to the question. Is that fair? Omar Mohammed. I've been thinking a lot about that actually in terms of the black subject and, and not being able to be representative of, of other experiences um, and whiteness being kind of positioned as this neutral, this, uh, this almost invisibleness in how it kind of reaches out or is mm -hmm. positioned as reaching out. Often it's kind of brought up in a way where it's seen as a limitation of blackness or black representation. It isn't able to stand for other experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not necessarily how I think about it. In terms of that positionality, perhaps what was wrong in the first place was the whiteness being positioned as being able to stand for other experiences or to be 
is to be transferable in that way. For example, I, I don't really have an issue with being seen as a Black artist, my Blackness being pronounced in that, my positionality being pronounced. What the issue for me is whiteness never being pronounced, never being spoken about. I feel like that kind of allows white supremacist thought and ideology to maintain as the thing that we are all subscribing to without actively subscribing to it because it's just there unnamed, engulfing us almost. But then I, you know, in terms of looking at the work, particularly the installation, the push, the call, the scream, the dream, uh-huh. You know, and the use of blue or the use of bronze. And, you know, one of my questions is about that shift from black and white photography to mm-hmm. a kind of coloured lens yeah. and the seduction of blue, but also the seduction of black and white, to be honest. I'm seeing it through the work, a mm-hmm. kind of blue. A kind of blue, absolutely. I think that, you know, as artists, we, we sort of enter like, a, we're interested in, in only a few things and, and that that uh, interest gets played out over the course of a lifetime. I've been interested in notions of blues and blue people and these sort of themes for many, 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 many years. I can't even count, though I rarely wear blue. But I've been thinking about it as a, as a sort of a form of communication communicating a set of ideas subtly for a really long time. So, you know, it gets picked up again in Repeating the Obvious, part of, you know, the Colored People series. It's a part of, you know, the Mary J. Blige series. It's a part of my Spike Lee series. It's a part of, you know, all of these pieces that I've made over the years using a tonal reference as a reference point for breaking into new territory and for sort of pushing beyond uh, certain kinds of notions, I think, of representation. Thomas, what do you think about this idea, about these notions of music and then sort of colored subjectivities in relationship to these ideas of what can be seen and consumed? I think, you know, in terms of poetry in particular, I see there to be a mutual need. One cannot exist without the other. And, and I don't know if that's because some of my dear friends are, are poets or my brother is a poet. What you're describing carry around like this kind of saturation of the image, which other forms of expressive culture like music or poetry might seemingly withhold are in some ways these kinds of two parts of a shared coin. And, and I'm, I'm thinking here of how your invocation is related to what Sonia you were saying about taking the work out of cold storage which I just love as a metaphor and and reminds me of a poet who has written about this relationship of image to poetic text Robin Cost Lewis in her Voyage of the Sable Venus because she you know she writes so gorgeously in that epic poem effectively doing what you Sonia are asking of taking the work that's hidden in plain sight. So she went to many, many museums over many, many years and looked for images and representations of Black women, which she originally thought she would find in paintings and sculptures and soon realized 
existed more in things like the feet of decorative furniture and in combs and in these kinds of objects that, you know, were, were firmly objects. They were things to be used. And, you know, that's where she found what she was looking for. She got down on her knees, scribbled down the name of the title, and then used that, another kind of theft of what was hers, to create this epic poem, all of found text. And I think what that speaks to for me is that ultimately this work of taking the work out of cold storage is a creative act, right? It's, Carrie, what you were saying around the pleasures of form, of molding. As curators too, this isn't a matter of simple annotation in Excel sheet of who's black and who's brown. That kind of work perhaps is a way to make available a set of materials, but to actually do the kinds of change that Borges' metaphor of taking the work out of cold storage demands is by a form of transformation that is wholly imaginative, right? That we actually have to imagine a whole new grammar for the way in which we put these things together. And that's what's so gorgeous about that long epic poem. And, and I think she really acknowledges the indebtedness of her ability to move in that space to the history of visual art. So I think about even that call and call as being something that is another form of mutuality, another another relation. That's interesting. Well, you know, Robin started her young life both as a writer and photographer, I think. She was a, a student of mine for a short time at, at Hampshire College. Didn't so I've known Robin for a, a very long time, wonderful, wonderful young writer. Thanks for bringing her up in this context and thanks for your insight. I'm having such a wonderful time. And, you know, I always think that, you know, these, these formats, like you have no idea who's looking. You have no idea who you're speaking to, which I really don't like. I really don't, I don't like having a sense that I don't see my audience. I don't know who's in the room with me. It makes me very uncomfortable. And it gives you sort of this sort of false sense of security when you're sort of chatting with your friends. When well, you are not. <laughs> you know, there's something else that's going on. There'll be a lot of enemies in that space. <laughs> you know, they normally show up somewhere when I'm somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> so, uh, so we um, we are starting to run out of time. I'm really sorry. We have one more question, a question by Jackie Cook, where she asks. How can we create a movement, an effective movement for visual creators from the African diaspora and people of color that will facilitate and allow for more voices to be heard, including those that may not focus on just being beautiful, but also those that challenge the status quo? The first thing that comes to mind, Sonia, around community is leaving space for misunderstanding and what one says being heard differently um, than the intention of the speaker. In other words, a space for translation. As we speak from one location to another, part of finding solidarity or finding a reason to be together is to always acknowledge its opposite, which is to say our fundamental differences from one another and the sense of power and asymmetry that you named early on in terms of cultural institutions. Um, it feels like as we imagine, I'm thinking here diasporically, that what it means to be a black person in Cardiff is at once related to a shared experience of anti-blackness 
that is lived in Manhattan and also different for any number of reasons. This holding of tension and paradox feels very related to, you know, Nicole, the way that you were looking at that image where we see as much as we don't see in the way that you described it, that, you know, opacity is also this other term to representation or, you know, Sonia, you use the word constellation early on. I think what's so frustrating in the way that you described the kinds of particularization of blackness versus the universalization of whiteness is that we don't always get to live in the grandeur of the cosmos or the particularity of the miniature. But that's what in Sonia, what you looked at was like Carrie is in both the specificity and the repetition, right? And I think just holding out the space in our desire to be with one another that we were gonna misunderstand and misrecognize and misrepresent and that we leave space for that as well. That's beautifully stated, this pandemic has um, undermined and disrupted our small community here in New York in, in, in very profound ways. Uh, many of us have lost uh, friends, we've lost relatives. It's been a disaster and um, will continue to be so, hopefully until people really are, are vaccinated. I'm going to put in my plug for that now because I know how important it is. I know that there's a lot of misgiving. I know that there's a lot of uh, there's a profound lack of trust in um, these institutions and um, for all kinds of historical reasons. And yet we know that if we want to return back to have some sort of normalcy in our lives, if we want to be able to see our friends, our families, again, which is my first community, then I have to be vaccinated. I can't go see my mother or my daughter or any of my friends without it. And so I want to encourage everyone to do that. I think that we build communities where we are. We are in a very uh, difficult circumstance and situation. We know that we're dealing with extraordinary powers, these systems that have been in place for a very long time. Capitalism is real. It's not <laughs> an imagined entity. And yet within that, we can build community and we can build communities that speak to and that critique power all along the way. And so my own simple belief in my daily practice is to question everything, is to critique everything around me to the best of my ability um, and to get as close to the bone and as close to the truth as I understand it as possible, to be as honest and as loyal to myself and to my family and my friends and my colleagues as I possibly can and to extend grace as much as I possibly can and compassion and understanding. And I think what Thomas has just said about leaving space for translation is absolutely key. But we have to start where we are, where we live, with the people that are around us and then with the work that we do and then paying attention to how that work then moves out into the world and uh, orchestrating that as much as possible, knowing that once it leaves your hands, it is out in the world and can be bent and shaped in any number of ways beyond your intended purpose. I suppose I would add to that, that one of the things that we do have at the moment is this device, this digital device. And for me, whether you use this digital device or any other means is to talk 
talking builds communities. To have that conversation, it may be an awkward conversation, but to have it all the same. Because one conversation, I think, as has been demonstrated so eloquently tonight, leads to another. Thank you, Sonia. But, you know, I, I, I question um, in some ways the way this panel is organized. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to see all of you and to meet you all. But there are no, there are no, um, they're all, we're all brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where are the other bodies? Where are the other people to be in dialogue with and conversation with? I think that that's really important. What I'm saying over and over and over again are these sort of defined spaces for Black people to sort of talk amongst themselves, but I'm not seeing this sort of mix of, of humanity in the room. Why is that? Of course, while I love this, I love meeting you all, I'm, you know, I'm calling institutions to task. Um, I'm invited someplace and there's immediately, there's, you know, it's assumed that the moderator has to be a person of color. I'm invited to an exhibition, it's automatically assumed that, you know, well, the programmer has got to be a person of color. And so I think that there are these sort of limits that are also being these sort of binaries, these binaries that are put in place that I, that I find very difficult. And I think that institutions really need to take a look at themselves. If anybody really needs to be having a conversation seriously about Blackness, it's white people, right? We can actually sort of take a step back for a moment. I'd love to see five white people talk about Black representation for a couple of hours. I haven't seen that as though they have no stake in the question or in the answers. So I think that the way in which these sorts of circles are established is problematic in and of themselves. Well, as a way to, to maybe address or to, to ponder on that question, I'm going to invite Nigel Prince to close the session and maybe he might, you know, kind of respond to carry your, your concerns and it's, and it's very thought-provoking and I... I absolutely understand what you're talking about there. Well, first of all, I want to thank everybody for the generosity of the conversation and exchange. As the talk has unfolded this evening, partly, I think, as, as a response to the challenge that carriers eloquently put forward there, then immediately I was thinking that this is and should be one of just the, bit, the beginning of a number of exchanges for everybody in, involved in, in this panel, plus the other panels that are unfolding through the overall series of At The Table, which does involve people of many places and colours and ideas and representations. It is just the beginning for us, this, this work, and is, is work that is to continue. And one thing that we had begun to discuss is how, instead of just having the six individual talks, with those discrete panels and that somehow being an end point, which of course in one sense it is an end point of sorts, but how do we how do we then build upon that and how do we take that forward and what are the ways that we can reconfigure the, the different peoples who'd, who'd made up those panels and recombine them to take the ideas and themes that are emerging through these talks so I think to pick up that gauntlet that carriers propose there is one that we will actively seek to do and continue this series through continuing to work with the people who, who are here present this evening and who were present two weeks ago and who will be present in the uh, following week. Examine and question and celebrate 
build that sense of communities and peoples that Thomas articulated, whereby there are those differing spaces for those differing moments and those different conversations and those difficult conversations to have. So watch this space as we continue forward. This episode was made possible by generous support from our partners at Cardiff Metropolitan University and by Arts Council Wales. Sound editing was by Bulb. The episode was introduced by me, Amy Taylor, Operations Administrator at Artist Mundi. In the next episode of At the Table, we will be joined by Miro Kozumi, who has been shortlisted for Artist Mundi 9. Joining Miro at the table will be Zoe Butt, Artistic Director of the Factory Contemporary Arts Centre, Ho Chi Minh City, Comparative Sociologist and Historian, Abu Bakr Madan Al-Shabazz, and Evie Manning, Co-Artistic Director of Commonwealth Theatre Company. This conversation will be happening as a free live webinar on Wednesday the 19th of May 2021 at 1pm British Summer Time. To book a ticket for this event, please visit artismundi.org. Dioch and fingers crossed we can meet up and see the exhibition together soon.